Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Adi. This week, we bring another previously unreleased episode to light, this time from a recording we made back in August of 2018. And this will be a little different of an episode than what we've done in the past. The guest speaker for this session is Mr. Bob Orr, and he guides us through not only an interesting history, but also the theology surrounding the lesser-known Christian creed known as the Athanasian Creed. Enjoy. Okay, what, what we're going to talk about today is the Athanasian Creed and the development of it. And I want to warn you one thing first. I didn't pick this. It was given to me and it was said to be right up my alley. I don't know what alley I was in, but (laughs) although I do appreciate, do like history and I do like uh, reading the church fathers and stuff like that because I think what happened then makes a lot of difference to what you look at today and and, uh, believe about what is today. So I was told by a pastor who will remain unnamed that this creed is incomprehensible. So I now have the job of making an incomprehensible creed comprehensible. If you don't know a little history, it probably is incomprehensible. So you're going to get some history this morning. The three creeds, the the Apostolic Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the uh, Athanasian Creeds, were probably finalized around the year 500, or the 5th century. So uh, we're going to be dealing with the area, time frame, between the year 300 and the year 500. The world was far different then. People haven't changed, but they didn't have our gadgets. They actually had to talk to each other. They couldn't email, they couldn't tweet, they couldn't Snapchat, they couldn't Facebook. (laughs) All those things, they were really deprived. No smartphones to tell them what to think or what to do. If they wanted to travel, they had to walk. And the rich people had either a two or four horsepower carriage. As far as the morals of society, they sound a little bit like today. Alfred Edersheim, in a book he wrote in the late 1800s, before we got politically correct, gives a description of Roman society. Public morals were corrupted by the mimic representations of everything that was vile. Absolute right did not exist. Sanctity of marriage had ceased. Abortion and infanticide was common and tolerated. Few believed in the gods and the emperor was worshipped or, uh, excuse me, emperor worship was commanded. Only about 12% in the year 300, only about 12% of the people were were Christians. And the Roman Empire probably had 50, 60 million people in it. But the 10 to 12 percent that was there had some effect on society, which caused a lot of official persecutions. And they were carried out periodically, depending upon the whims of the emperor. Some of these descriptions of the Roman society sound very familiar to today's society. So we haven't changed. Times changed, but we haven't changed. Why was this creed written? Heresies, in other words, false teachings, had, had mixed in with the churches, and the creeds were written to provide a standard for people to measure. 
there were two, between the 300 and the 500 year group, there were two major church councils that attacked the heresies. The Council of Nicaea in 325 and the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Your handout, I think, says 421. It's actually 451. During this time, a great deal of our doctrine on the nature and essence of God and the books of the New Testament were accepted as canon. They didn't put down new ideas, but were forced by the heresies to clarify the apostolic teachings of that day. If you go over to item one, which is the second page, we'll get to the Athanasian Creed itself in a few minutes. What is a creed? A creed by definition is a summary or statement of what one believes. It originates from the Latin word credo, which means I believe. Its purpose is to act as a yardstick of correct belief. It is an epitome, and I had to look that word up, which means a condensed account, not a full definition of what is required for orthodoxy. It was hoped that by memorizing this summary of faith, lay people without extensive theological training would still be able to recognize deviations from orthodox doctrines in the Bible. The early church was significantly concerned with the truth in the Bible, not be compromised. Somehow today we have lost that. We were warned by scripture that this would happen. And I'm going to quote from your favorite book of the Bible, the book of Jude. Everybody knows that one. It, they open to it immediately. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend with the faith that was once for all entrusted to, to God's holy people. For certain individuals who condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Christ our only sovereign and Lord. In Acts, Paul, when he's saying goodbye to the Ephesians, says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. And in Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy says, guard what has been entrusted to your care, turn away from godless chatter and opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. This was an attack on one of the earliest heresies, Gnosticism, which means is the Greek word for knowledge. So the heresies were already started against the church clear back in the days of Timothy and Paul. The knowledge which some have professed and in doing so have departed from the faith. Some Christians denominations teach that creeds are not necessary because they were written by people. They're not intended to be written by God. Are they necessary for salvation? No, they're not necessary for salvation. What is necessary for salvation? Faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. So creeds only give you an aid to find out what is false and what is true. Are standards necessary? Because the creed provides you with a standard. Without a standard, I would say anything is possible. Dostoevsky says, said, without God, all things are possible. So without a standard, you have nothing to measure with. Creed serve, served historically as a teaching tool, educating people on the basis of Christian faith. Historically, the three creeds that the Lutheran Church follows is the Apostles' Creed, 
This was a very early creed, not the way it is written today, but it was used by the early churches as a confession to become a member of the church. And so it was a shorter version, but it was used as a confession to become a member of a church. The churches then were what we would call closed. We have open communion uh, or close communion in the Lutheran church, but they had closed communion. You had to be a member and you had to profess your faith in Christ to become a member of the church in those days. The Nicene Creed, the second one we've got, which we sometimes use in this church, is, uh, was originally developed at the Council of Nicaea in 325, although only part of it was developed then. It was later enhanced at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. It was also derived from a church, I think it was, uh, well, I can't remember the name of it, but one of the churches used a portion of that creed as their confession of faith for new members. So these things developed out of the very, very early church. The Athanasian Creed is not widely used at all, and a lot of churches don't recognize it as a creed of the church. Not surprising, since I was told it's incomprehensible, so, you know. <laughs> Who are the key players on item two there? Around the year 300, the church was really a confederation of bishops who were like senior pastors in their area, and they had a lot of sub-churches underneath them. There was no hierarchy above the bishop in those days. The bishops of large cities had many smaller congregations under them, with Alexandria and Rome being the major ones. I read someplace with that that the bishop of Alexandria had about a hundred sub-churches underneath him, and they elected their bishops in those days. The, the pastors or bishops of the sub-churches would elect the, the bishop of Alexandria. Rome, of course, was was a major center because that's supposedly where Peter and Paul were killed, and it was originally the home of the emperor and sort of the, the center of the empire. Alexandria was the other major bishopry in those days because it was the breadbasket bread of the empire, and it was an extremely wealthy city. In those days, you couldn't go to the store and buy a Bible. The creeds were a short form of doctrine that people could memorize and test what they heard against a standard. Printing didn't start until about 1450, and books were extremely rare, handwritten, and very expensive in the 300 to 500 year span. The canon as we know it today was not yet formally established. In fact, I did not find any formal declaration of canon until the Council of Trent in the 16th century. It doesn't mean there wasn't one, it just simply means I didn't find it. As opposed to many common beliefs, however, the New Testament books were fairly well agreed to by as early as 170. The uh, fragment document, the Muratorian canon fragment from that time lists, lists the four Gospels, Acts, the Epistles of Paul, 1 John, Jude, and the Revelation of John as being accepted books of Scripture. This is the earliest listing, listing, and it is only a fragment of a document. Later listings include all the books of the New, question, the New Testament, with questions only on James, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, and Hebrews. And these books were finally uh, put into the 27 books of the Bible. Hebrews, by 
an interesting bit, was put in because they thought Paul had written it. Today, almost nobody thinks Paul has written it. Augustine, the Saint Augustine, in the 390s, held several synods and councils to discuss the scripture. And on his treatise on Christian doctrine, he wrote in 397, he lists all 27 books of the Bible. And that's the first listing I was able to find of the 27 books of the New Testament. But still, I didn't find any formal declaration by the church. The church, as I said, didn't have much of a hierarchy in those days. The councils were the hierarchy. The books were considered true because they were apostolic, written by apostles, or else they were approved by the apostles. And they were considered received from the Lord, not designated by the council as being true. They just, the council said, we receive these books from the Lord as true. You hear today that sometimes people will say, well, the church, the Roman church declared these books the authorized scripture. Therefore, the Roman church is in charge of it. No, the Roman church, the churches in those days say, we've received these from the Lord. We didn't, we didn't declare them true. We received them because they agreed with the apostolic teachings, and these people weren't that far away from the death of the apostles. Polycarp, a student of John, was burned at the stake in 155. By the way, it wasn't too healthy to be a Christian in those days. And his student, Irenaeus, was beheaded in 202. But I, we're only talking about 100 years after that, and I am sure there were a lot of these bishops. There were only three or four uh, bishops away from the actual apostles themselves, and they were very, very jealous about keeping the apostolic teachings of the apostles. Heresies and the Arian heresy. This, the Arian heresy was the one that instigated the, the development of the Council of Nicaea, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. The first 300 to 350 years of Christianity and the last 200 years the 18th, 19th, uh, excuse me, 19th and 20th century, and clear into today's date, have been the times when Scripture has most heavily been attacked. It started with the Gnostic heresy that I referred to in the letter to Timothy in the first century. Arius was an elder in Alexandria and used Proverbs 8.22 from the Septuagint translation and built his heresy on it. He argued that Christ was an exalted creature, but he was less than God. Christ was a created being, and there once was a time when he was not. He denied the divinity of Jesus. The heresy spread across the Eastern Empire and also was extensively spread in the West. Arius was evidently a very charismatic speaker and convinced many of bishops. He was eventually excommunicated by the church at Alexandria, but that didn't stop him. The heresy spread after his death and was used by many so-called church leaders to build up secular power bases in the empire using the current emperor, emperor to support their cause. Who was Athanasius? Because the two were on opposite sides of this. Athanasius was born about 290, 295, somewhere along in there. They don't have an exact date. He died in 373. He was also an elder at Alexandria under Bishop Alexander. 
makes it easy to remember that because Alexandria and Bishop Alexander and succeeded him as bishop in 328. During his 45 years as bishop, he was exiled five times, mostly by the emperor. And in some of these exiles, he was driven into the desert and hunted by imperial troops seeking his death. He was in constant struggle against the Arians and the emperors that followed Constantine. He, per he persevered through it all and in the end was called the pillar of the church. On his gravestone is marked Athanasius Contramunda, which means Athanasius against the world. He was the foremost defender of orthodoxy and considered one of the four great Eastern fathers. Of course, the Athanasian Creed is named for him. The Council of Nicaea, we're now up to 325, was called by the Emperor Constantine, who back in 312 uh, became uh, the Augustus of the Western Empire. The empire was split in two, an Augustus of the East and an Augustus of the West. And then in 324, he conquered both the East and the West. But in 312, he saw a vision, supposedly, and it said, in this sign you will conquer. And the sign was, of course, the sign of the cross. So he became a Christian, and he stopped the persecutions. He made Christianity in 324 an authorized religion in the Roman Empire. He called the Council of Nicaea to try to stop the divide in the church. He said, I got a unified empire. I want a unified church instead of the splitting off of the Arians and the Orthodox. The two main issues at the Council of Nicaea, by the way, the councils were not called by the church leaders. They were called by the emperor. Two main issues were Arianism and the time for the celebration of Easter. Athanasius, while still an elder, an elder was voicing, supporting, was a major voice supporting the Trinitarian view. The major issue was, is the Son one essence with the Father and Holy Spirit? The result was the Nicene Creed, which states, Christ begotten, not, be, not made, being of one substance with the Father. The creed, like I said, was not quite the creed we have today, but the first half is pretty much the same. The final verse, version was found on the proceedings in the Council of Chalcedon in 451. The issue over the time of Easter, uh, the bishops did a very normal thing for committees to do. They kicked the can down the road, and the Eastern and Western churches still have different ways of computing the date of Easter. The results of Nicaea, all but five of the 250 bishops signed the Nicene Creed and said, it's, it's okay. But the fighting continued and it was bloody fighting for the next 60 years. It wasn't just a debate in some back room where theologians would argue. They, they were murdering people, taking over cities, all kinds of things like this. It was not a very fun time. When this heresy was finally subsided in the 380s, once again, the emperor stopped it. New heresies developed over the person of Christ. One of them stated that Christ was one person, therefore he could only have one nature. And thus the two, na the two natures of Christ were commingled and confused together into one nature. This was called the monophysite heresy, which means the immutable God actually mutated or changed, which is impossible for God to do. The other heresy sought to separate the two natures of Christ into two persons called the Nestorian heresy, 
And these two heresies, since he had two natures, he had to have two persons. And these heresies resulted in the Council of Chalcedon. This council was again called by, uh, called by the emperor, Emperor Martian, and it had 520 bishops in attendance from across the empire. The results confirmed the Trinitarian nature of Christ, of three persons, one essence, excuse me, of God, three persons, one essence, and Christ as the Son of God, one person and two natures, which are not confused or commingled, changed, and not divided or separated, and each retained its own attributes. Since we cannot understand one person, two natures, it is defined by what it is not, not by what it is. Now, if you're not all totally confused by now, I suggest maybe you want to take another cup of coffee. I, I, like I said here, I hope you got all this down for the test that we're going to have at the end. Is it an open book test? Yeah, if you can find a book. <laughs> the creed was originally, the, the Athanasian creed was originally thought to have been written by Athanasius, therefore he had put his name on it. Since it declares his strong positions on the Trinity the nature of, and the nature of Christ. But the actual author is unknown, and the first evidence of the creed does not show up until the 6th century. However, if I go to another source, it shows the 5th century, and if I go to another source, it says the 9th century. So somewhere in there, the Athanasian Creed, as it is today, showed up. What are the key concepts? We're going to get actually now to the creed. So and you've got it all printed out on the front of your... Sure. What would it have taken to be a bishop? Is that a political? No, no, it was, uh, they were elected by the, uh, by the other pastors, if you want to call it that. I, they didn't call them pastors, but, you know, like, like uh, Alexandria had like 100 churches under the bishop. And I guess they were all called bishops because all bishop meant was elder. And so a, a bishop is really a teaching, uh, a pastor is really a teaching elder. And, but they, were, they would elect the bishop now. Every once in a while, the emperor would come in and throw that bishop out and put his in, and, and stuff like that would happen. But uh, no, there was, uh, the, like I said, the hierarchy of the church was pretty, uh, I don't know, leveled out. It wasn't a pyramid like it is today. Okay, the Athanasian Creed, and I want to, I know you can't see this, but they didn't give me a big printer, so I, can't, I couldn't find a big one. But it starts out by saying three and one and one and three. No dividing in substance for God himself. We are accused many times of having three gods by other, other the Jews accused of, of that, having, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as three gods. But it's one in substance. We have one God. When talking about God, it goes through and belabors this thing. The Father is not created. The Son is not created. The Holy Spirit is not created, and then it goes through it again and again and again. And it's kind of tough reading. But it, is, it covers God is uncreated. God is the uh, only being that cannot, cannot not be. He is an uncreated being. Incomprehensible, God is incomprehensible. That doesn't mean we can't know anything about him. What it does mean, we know about him what he reveals to us in scripture and in nature. Because other than that, he is a transcendent being. He is eternal, he's uncreated. These were direct attacks against Arianism, which said the son was created and the, and the uh, son was not eternal. Almighty, 
I'm not sure how that got into the creed. That might have been a, a shot at the emperor saying, this is the almighty, you're not. But I don't know, that's just my guess. Underneath that, we have God and Lord. And I put them side by side like this because there was a heresy at the time that said, it doesn't make sense to us because we, th we think those are the same terms. But it's Theos and, and Karios. In those days, they said God was the Father and the Lord was the Son. And the Lord is subservient to the Father. And so they had a theory going out that said Christ was a, I guess you would call it, lesser God than the Father. Now, how you can be a lesser God, I don't know. Since God is all things and fills all things, there isn't any place for a lesser God. That's one thing God cannot do. He cannot create another God. The three persons of, the, of God are co-eternal, co-equal. This is an ultimate attack on this same thing. There is no uh, subordination in the Godhead. And then the last portion of the, or the next section, talks about Christ. He has a divine nature, a human nature, and there's no confusion of the substance. And then the last paragraph of the creed talks of, is almost like the Apostles' Creed. So we'll go through it real quick. Whosoever will be saved must before all things hold the Catholic faith. Catholic mean, meaning universal here. Whoever does not keep it whole and undefiled without doubt, he shall perish everlastingly. Now, we don't say those kind of things in our, in our creeds today, but they did then, and they were very serious about what they were teaching. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, one in three, three in one, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person, the Father, another person, the Son, and another, the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is all one, and glory equal, the majesty co-eternal, such as the Father is, such as the, is the Son, and such as the Holy Ghost. And then we go into the attack on the Arian heresy. The Father is uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Ghost uncreated, the Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Ghost incomprehensible, the Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Ghost eternal. And yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. And so there are not three incomprehensibles or three uncreated, but one uncreated and one uncompre incomprehensible, except for the creed itself, which is incomprehensible. <laughs> so likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, and the Holy Ghost almighty. And they're not three almighties, but one almighty. And this is, I just, I couldn't figure out how that got in there because it didn't fit with any of the background that I read on it. But it's there, and like I said, it may be a shot at the emperor. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Ghost is God. And there are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Ghost is Lord. Yet not three lords, but one Lord. And then it seems to sort of repeat itself. For like as we are compelled by the Christian tooth to acknowledge every person by himself to be both God and Lord, so we are forbidden by the Catholic religion to say there are three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither, in other words, the Father is uncreated, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made, 
now created, but begotten. The Holy Ghost is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Ghost, not three Holy Ghosts, and in this Trinity, none is afore or after the other, none is greater or less than the another. But in the whole, three persons are co-eternal together and co-equal, so that in all things, as aforesaid, unity and Trinity, and Trinity and unity is to be worshiped, and therefore that will be saved that and therefore that will be saved is must think thus of the Trinity. And then the next section it talks about Christ. Furthermore, it is necessary to everlasting salvation that he also believe rightly in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man, God of the substance of the Father, begotten before all worlds, and man of the substance of his mother, born in the world. Perfect God and perfect man. The Nicene Creed calls it true God and true man. Of a rational soul and human flesh, subsisting equal to the Father as touching his Godhead and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood, who, although he be God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ, one not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of the manhood into God, one altogether not by confusion of substance, by the unity, but by the unity of person, for as a reasonable, for as the reasonable soul and the flesh is one man. This next section reads very similar to the uh, Apostles' Creed. So God and man are one Christ who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again the third day from the dead, and ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father God Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead, at whose coming all men will rise again with their bodies and shall give account of their own works. And they that have done good shall go to everlasting life, and they that have done evil to everlasting fire. This is the Catholic faith. Whoever does not believe it faithfully and firmly cannot be saved. Now, if you had to go through all of that to become a member of this church, it would be a pretty difficult session of teaching for you because that is, in some ways, it's very confusing. The bishops of, Ni uh, of Nicaea and Chalcedon, however, believe themselves to be simply outlining the teachings of the apostolic fathers who came before them and not inventing, inventing any kind of new definition. Where in Scripture do we find the concept of the Trinity? Trinity is not used in Scripture as a word anywhere. It does not appear in the Bible. So we are accused many times of believing in three gods instead of one God and three persons. I would say it starts right in Genesis 1. God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God hovered over the deep. There's the, there's the Father and the Spirit. You take John, first John uh, verse 1, and says, all things were created by the Logos, and nothing that was created was created except by him. So the Father created the world through the Son in Genesis 1. So you got all three of them there present at that time. 
what about at the baptism of Christ? You've got the Father saying, this is my beloved Son. You've got the Spirit coming down as a dove. And of course, you've got the Son being baptized. Our redemption is a Trinitarian effort. The Father set out the plan of redemption, which goes throughout the Bible. The Son carried out the plan of redemption by living a perfect, being born of a virgin, living a perfect life, and going to the cross, and then the resurrection. And the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ to the individual person by quickening our spirit and entering into us and uh, justifying us and then sanctifying us as we go through life. So all three of them are involved in the redemption plan. Okay, Where in Scripture does it declare Christ to be the Son of God? I get it from some of my neighbors that nowhere in Scripture does it say that Christ declared himself to be the Son of God. Any takers on that one? Yeah. Peter, Peter said you are the Son. He said you are right. He said when he was talking to the apostles. Yeah. What about on the Mount of Transfiguration where the divinity of Christ actually burned through his, his clothes and his being and he glowed with uh, whiteness? How about the I am statements in the book of John, where he says, I am the door, I am the way, I am the good shepherd. The use of I am there is ego emi in the Greek. Now, every I am in the Bible is not ego emi, because ego emi sounds like you're stuttering. It means I am, I am. But I am, I am is also the name that God's name is translated into Greek in the Old Testament when he faced Moses and Moses said, what, what is your name? And God said, I am who I am. And that's translated egoimi. So you wouldn't, trans you wouldn't put egoimi in a document unless it meant I am, I am, the name of God. Christ said, I and I and the Father are one. I don't have the reference for it, but I know it's there. Three declarations of God calling him his son from, from the heavens, one at baptism, one on the Mount of Transfiguration, and one before the temple uh, toward the end of his life. And he refers to himself as the Son of Man almost 85 times in the, in the scriptures. The Son of Man refers to the event that took the vision that Daniel had in Daniel chapter 7 when Daniel saw the throne of God and the Son of Man coming before the throne. In other words, Christ very definitely said he was the Son of God. Now, as C.S. Lewis said, anybody that calls himself the Son of God and isn't the Son of God is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. But, but I, get the, I get this from, and if I have Muslim neighbors, and they give me handouts once in a while, and it says right in there that Jesus said he was never, he's never divine, and he's never uh, the son declared himself son of God. With the writing of the Nicene Creed, the results of the Council of Chal Chalcedon, and the Athanasian Creed, the pretty, basically pretty well established, the Trinity and the nature of Christ. Today, at least, most the majority of Christian churches accept this. I personally prefer the Nicene Creed. It's more readable. And it's more to the point, however, it doesn't cover the nature of Christ. Now, is any of this pertinent or is it matter in the world today, an item four on your list? 
do we need a standard? Do we need a standard like that? As I said before, if you've got no standards, anything is acceptable. Does truth matter? Yeah. Uh, in looking at the Athanasian Creed, it seemed like it all, all was sitting really good until the last two sentences. In the last two sentences, all of a sudden, these works righteous. The last two sentences are straight out of Scripture. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I had the same thing when I read it, and then I realized that's straight out of Scripture. But that, that doesn't mean that you gain justification by works. That means the end result of what happens to you, it depends on your works, because without justification, you, uh, your works, in other words, you can do nothing good without Christ. Without justification, you will be judged by your works. Oh, yeah. And with justification, you're also justified. You're also judged by your works, but it's a different judgment. You're already in heaven, so to speak. It's just a matter of where in heaven you end up. You end up with three crowns, two crowns, or one crown, or do you just make it in, as it says in 1 Corinthians, with all of the chaff and rubble burned off of you and you're smoking from the fire? <laughs> Does truth matter? Any takers on that? I'm talking about true truth. And Francis Schaeffer had to coin the term true truth because the term truth is so mixed up and lost much of its meaning today. But does truth matter? I certainly hope so. Pilate looked at Jesus in the face at the, uh, at the uh, trial, and he said, what is truth? And then he turned around and walked away, not realizing he was looking straight at the living truth. But that's what we do today. People say, well, that's true, and then you turn around and walk away and ignore it totally. A.W. Tozer wrote about 50 years ago, I think I still got, yeah, I got time for this, that what happens when we live without standards? The average person in the world today without faith and without God and without hope is engaged in a des desperate personal search through his lifetime. He does not really know where he has been. He does not really know where he is, what he is doing here and now, does not know where he is going. The sad commentary is, he is doing it all on borrowed time, borrowed money, and borrowed strength. And he already knows that in the end he will surely die. It boils down to a bewildering confession of many that we have lost God and somewhere along the way. So without truth and without standards, you're just wondering. In a recent session that we had in here on the Sermon on the Mount, Christ talks about building a house on rock or on sand. The house that we build, in my opinion, is our worldview. We all have one. It's the lens with which we filter everything. Is your worldview built on something solid, or is it floating on sand? The worldview needs to answer four major questions. Where did we come from? Why are we here? How should we live? And where are we finally going? In other words, origin, meaning, morals, and destiny. Is what our house stands on rock or sand? The rock is Jesus Christ. The foundations of our house is the apostles and the prophets, but the rock that it stands on is Jesus Christ. And the reformer said it stands on scripture and scripture alone, not scripture plus something or scripture minus something. History repeats itself. There is no new news, just old news to new people. 
the 19th and 20th centuries have had continuous attacks on the authenticity of scripture from higher criticism schools, JEPD attacks, modernism, to the Jesus seminars, if you remember them, from the 1990s, where they sat around in a room and a bunch of theologians sat there and threw white and black marbles into a jar to see whether that, that passage was done by Christ or if it wasn't done by Christ. So they re-edited the Bible according to them. The Bible is the most critiqued, researched, and maligned, maligned, criticized book in the history of the world, but it still stands. We need to know what it says to counter false teachings. Today we have sects or religions that still declare Christ is a created person. He's a very good teacher, a super prophet, but not the Son of God and not divine. Almost all the heresies of the first three centuries are still with us today. If you don't have heresies, then you'll believe, I mean, if you don't have standards, you will believe anything. Does it, does it matter today? The question on question four, probably more than ever. Christ is not God. If Christ is not God, then we are still in our sins and there is no forgiveness. We just have to work it all out with our good works. But the Bible says all our good works are filthy rags. And there is none that do good, no, not even one. And in, in John 15, you can do nothing without me, Christ says. So we are stuck at the bottom of a hole, and we have a shovel in our hand to dig it deeper. Paul says, who can save us from this state? In Romans, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of, of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is now no condemn condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, without scripture, we are totally lost. There must be a question in here somewhere. I don't have a question, but I have a comment. The value of the Apostles' Creed to me is that when we come together on Sunday morning to worship and to have communion, the Apostles' Creed unites us all as having one faith, mm -hmm. all believing the same thing. And, and I think that's very important for worship and for communion. Yep. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, that's the reason we use it in the, in the worship service. And so that we all have a, a standard that we can uh, work around. But, like I said, they didn't have, remember, in 300, they didn't have books. They didn't have scripture. Uh, they had parchments, but very few people had them. But there are, there are churches today that are a lot looser. Oh, yeah. That you can come to church and worship, but believe whatever you, mm -hmm. you want. There's not a common... That's right. Belief. That's why saying the Apostles' Creed at least gives a cohesiveness to our service. Yeah. This was written less than 100 years after the Nicene Creed, right? Because it was 325 to 421. Is that? Uh, 451. Oh, 451. Okay, yeah. Right. So it, it seems like the main purpose of this, since the triune nature of God is such a difficult concept for people to understand. It seems like a big part of this was just to kind of reinforce that and expound on it. Is that? Oh, yeah, yeah, because that was all under attack. Yeah. You see, in other words, they were attacked then by the, the Jews back in the first century were attacking the Christians because they, they were polytheists because they believed in three gods. So I guess just reading through it now, I don't find it that incomprehensible because it lays out a fairly logical... You'll have to, you'll have to go to my source on that one. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay. Now we'll close with prayer then. Holy Father, we thank you for seeing us and knowing who we are. Thank you for the gift of your Son and for the gift of the Holy Scriptures. Holy Spirit, work in us so that we may be able to discern your truth from all the false teachings. We ask you for your protection in this coming week for all of us as we go about our duties. And we ask, since it is the first week of school, we ask for the protection of all the students who are going to class this week. We ask this in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com, where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.